Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is the Bug House Podcast. Bug House is a production of Literate8.com. The following podcast was recorded live on November 6, 2017 and featured artists Dave Goss, Emily Belden, Don Hall, Kirk Kicklighter, Mike Venopel, and Erica Napolitano. This is Bug House. Yeah. All right. In times of great political distress, our country has been here before. Guys, we've been here before, where we have been politically at odds in great differences and, and just a lot of... Washington Square Park, 1911. It was known as, nicknamed Bug House Square. The reason it was named as Bug House Square is Bug House is nomenclature for a crazy house, a loony bin. Bug House. And it was called Bug House Square because it was a place where lunatics and radicals and crackpots and anarchists would gather and get on soapboxes and they would sit and they would argue the issues of the day. Jump to now, and we've hit a point where, and we'll call it the age, we can call it the age of Donald Trump, I prefer to call it the age of social media, because it ultimately means the same thing. Our ability to argue has come down to, I think this, and now I'm going to yell at you for a while, I'm going to insult you a whole bunch, and I'm going to spin. And that's not persuasive. It's just bludgeoning each other with ideas. So we here at Literate Ape want to... Bring back the idea of persuasive argument. And so that's what this is all about. What you're going to see is you're going to see three bouts. Three head-to-head -head bouts on topics that may mean something to you. Um, the bouts, the topics tonight are, have identity politics destroyed the progressive left? Which is more effective, rehabilitation or punishment? And neo versus Tyler Durden. Those are our three topics. And you're gonna see six artist warriors come up and make their case in a persuasive way. We'll have six performers, we will have three winners. Each winner will get to reach into this, this vintage cornet case that is filled with 50 envelopes. In these 50 envelopes, 48 of these envelopes have $1 bills. Two of them have $100 bills. Last month, we only had one $100 bill. This month, we have two. Nobody got one last month, so that's why there's an additional one. So somebody might, but just like, you know, traditionally in America, capitalism is either blind luck or inheritance. So you get, you get to go with the blind luck. In order for there to be a judging, a lot of shows of this stripe let the audience vote or have like a series of judges. We go with the very unusual protocol taken from the 1997 Kevin Costner film Swing Vote, where we have one person represent all. It is a way, again, with the traditional American politics of allowing you to understand that while you may vote, it probably doesn't fucking matter. Because the 1% of the 1% is really gonna control who wins and who loses, and tonight, our random judge is Mr. Richard Norby. Yeah. Applaud him now because you may not like him later. 
because you don't get to influence his vote. He does not, in fact, he said, I don't have to give my criteria. Not at all. You just say winner, loser, that's it. That's all. From now, from this point on, he will be known as the judge. Very simply, that's it. And that is Bug House. So let's start our very, are you ready for the very first bout? Let me bring to the stage Emily Belden, Dave Goss, give him a hand. Neo versus Tyler Durden. Hello. <laughs> Glad I remembered to put that on there. Bear with me for just one second here. <laughs> I am pretty athletic, obviously, <laughs> like I need to tell you. But as athletic as I am, could I do this? No, I could not. And why is that? Because I am not Neo, and Neo rules. <laughs> I need a volunteer from the audience who would like to be my special volunteer. Oh, you? Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. I know what's happening. I know you. Yes. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, when I give you the signal, throw these at me one by one. How's your aim? Good? Pretty good. Okay, awesome. <laughs> You can come closer if you need to. So you all know that I'm pretty athletic. We just went over this. But what you don't know is that I'm also pretty cool. <laughs> some might even go so far as to say I'm pretty awesome. And by some, I mean me. I would go so far as to say I'm pretty awesome most days. And since I'm pretty awesome, I would probably be able to do some pretty awesome things. You ready? Yeah. Okay, give it to me. Don't hit the air. Go. Go for it. Throw him. Okay. Okay, so what happened? Well, I tried to stop these three bullets in midair with my hand, but I wasn't able to. And why is that? Because I am not Neo, and Neo rules. <laughs> this is Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden, like me, is pretty awesome, I'll admit it. Like me, he's also pretty athletic. Some might even go so far as to say he's more athletic than me, if you can believe that. Notice his physique. Notice it. Notice it. One would think, with a physique like his, with the athleticism and the awesomeness that he has, Tyler Durden would be able to do some pretty awesome things. Like, perhaps these things. Could he do these things? No, he could not do these things. And why is that? Well, he might be able to do some fairly cool things, but he could definitely not do these 
pretty awesome things because Tyler Durden is not fucking Neo. <laughs> and Neo fucking rules. So who is Neo? Well, Neo, put simply, is the one. He's the one. The hero of the Matrix trilogy. The one to save the world. To rebuild the world from ground up. Is Tyler Durden the one? No, of course not. There cannot be more than one one. And as we just discussed, Neo is the one. And Tyler Durden is not even real. He's a product of the narrator's split personality disorder. He's a figment of his imagination. And even if Tyler Durden were real, which he is not, he is no hero. Let me rewind for just a second here. Thematically, the stories of The Matrix and Fight Club have some pretty major similarities. Essentially, they're both about a world stripping its citizens of their freedoms. In The Matrix, this is done in a very literal way. Machines have literally taken over the world, plugged human beings into computers, and are using them as batteries, as slaves. In Fight Club, this is done in more of a figurative way, through commercialism, marketing ploys, rules, regulations, government. In The Matrix, the world has already been torn down and the only place for it to go is up. And Neo is there to see that process through, that rebuilding process through, as the world's savior. In Fight Club, the world, according to Tyler Durden, needs to be torn down until it hits rock bottom. And once it gets there, Tyler Durden couldn't give two shits what happens to it. He will not be there to see any process of rebuilding through because he is not the world's savior. Tyler Durden is no hero. He's a villain. And so when I ask the question, Neo or Tyler Durden, While all of these things that Neo can do are pretty awesome things and would be, should be, reason enough for me to choose Neo, the big reason, the one reason, is this. Neo represents hope. Tyler Durden represents despair. Neo is the light and Tyler Durden is the darkness. I will always, always choose hope. I will always choose the light. What will you choose? <laughs> thinking, this chick seems like she would have been better suited for the Britney Spears versus Christina Aguilera debate. Let me tell you something. 
You're absolutely right. <laughs> Seriously, Don, would it have killed you to make this one about like 90s sitcoms or best boy band ever? Okay, regardless, prior to this event, I should mention I had never seen Fight Club or The Matrix or really anything that didn't star Zac Efron. So for me, my opinion doesn't stem from years of mulling over these movies like most people who have seen them. Instead, it stems from the cold, hard truth that Tyler Durden is just the superior character between the two. So when I show up, I show up to win, even if that means two separate trips to the public library to check out scratched up DVDs and clocking nearly six hours of TV time. Because now I am prepared to explain to you exactly how and why Tyler Durden beats Neo Anderson any day, anywhere, anytime. For starters, let's get this whole blue pill, red pill thing out of the way. Problem number one for, with Neo is that he took the red pill. I'm sorry, but is this world as we know it not already sad and depressing enough that you have to plunge into a deeper layer of hell? I can't tell if that makes him a sadist or a glutton, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all, Neo. <laughs> Instead, Tyler embraces life's shittiness and decides, I'm gonna fight it. And if I can't fight it, I'll just destroy it. Very valid tactic. I use something similar to combat my middle school bully and let me just say that Christina Kostecki hasn't been a problem for the last 10 years. <laughs> Point number two, the Oracle says it herself to Neo. Not too bright though. The guy may have a good soul, but he's just kind of dumb. <laughs> Unless a computer program is loading something into his brain, this guy barely enunciates and is kind of a bumbling idiot. I remember pausing the movie at one hour and 20 minute, 28 minutes in and actually uttering out loud, so when does Neo do anything cool? <laughs> Tyler Durden, on the other hand, is cool from moment one, and even the narrator knows it. He dresses cool, he talks cool, and he has cool hair. In fact, he has more cool points than any character in Hollywood. Another thing he does from moment one is not give any fucks. He lives his life to the fullest, no matter what anyone or anything in society has to say about it. TBH, I didn't get that vibe from Neo until one of the very last scenes in The Matrix. Coming to the conclusion that you should live an authentic life outside of the system sooner matters in this debate. That said, Tyler is the smartest motherfucker on the planet without the help of artificial intelligence. Sure, he's a bit cocky, but isn't that who you want on your catchphrase team? A quick-thinking, animated, intelligent man who knows how to make a nice bar of soap? <laughs> Speaking of him in that soap gig, Tyler is a prime example of being a more-than-meets-the-eye kind of a guy. I love encountering people like this. You cross paths with someone and think they cap it being a data enterer or a car mechanic, or in this case, case a soap salesman. But then they turn out to have the raddest hobby in the world, beating people up in the basement of a restaurant they have no business being in. That is fucking awesome. This leads me to my next point about Tyler. If you've never wished there was a version of yourself who was more confident, less fearful, and could chain smoke cigarettes and not have it affect your physical stamina, then frankly, you are a goddamn liar. <laughs> the last time I remotely resembled anything like that, I was in college. But those four years go by fast, and clearly Tyler has mastered living like a total badass well into his 30s. Now, I'm going to ask you to think about yourself. Think about everything you would change about yourself. Every bad habit, every shortcoming, every worry, every debt, every fear. Next, think about everything you love about yourself. 
your best qualities, your strongest points, your most beautiful features. Got them? Great. Now, imagine being able to snap your fingers and suddenly you're free of all the things that stall you, leaving you with a life that only includes the things that elevate you. How would you feel if you were that person? Like a rock star? Like you could achieve anything? Like you'd never suffer a loss, a setback, or any repercussion ever again? That is what Tyler Durden does, and that is who Tyler Durden is. Pure charisma, zero computer programming. And in theory, Tyler's, Tyler Durden's persona is achievable by every person in this room. This is what I want out of a character, out of anyone really, to be inspired. When I tune into Tyler Durden, I want to do anything and everything to prove that I am alive. He makes me want to get out of my apartment, stop shopping excessively, order dessert, do anything to claim my humanity. Let's not also forget that Neo can't do anything on his own. Every character in the movie is in some way responsible for any greatness he seems to achieve by the end. He's like Beyonce or Lady Gaga or really any overrated performer with an entourage. <laughs> Tyler is a one-man show. So what is Neo better at? Dodging bullets? I'll give him that. Dressing in all black? Fine. Jesus allegories? Sure, but you can have those. <laughs> because what I'm after is who sticks it to the man better in the end, and for me, that is Tyler Durden. Let's flash forward to, in both movies over two hours in when we finally see these anti-authority, anti-society individuals make their final points. On one hand, we have Neo, who disobeys gravity by lifting off into the air with his black trench coat fluttering into the wind. All of this is accompanied by Rage Against the Machine. For me, a scene that only wins in the 90s cheese category. Then, there's Tyler, our hero. This man orchestrates the tumbling of an entire skyline and watches the buildings fall like their 4th of July fireworks popping off in the end. That is bad freaking ass. Let me put it this way. If I popped out a kid with exceptional charisma, leadership skills, strategic planning ability, vision for his future, drive and motivation for said vision, and did what he needed to do to achieve it, regardless of what anyone would think, I would be one proud mama. Tyler Durden is Hollywood's most compelling character. He also looks better in gas station sunglasses. He's not only the man, he's the myth and he's the legend too. And if you're tempted to be that irritating know-it-all who points out that Tyler isn't even real, first of all, don't. And secondly, just remember that Neo can only win in a fight if slow motion and literally morphing through someone's skin are options. <laughs> At least in Fight Club, those broken noses are the real deal and done in real time. And finally, before I go, I'll leave you with just one more thing as inspiration, since like I said earlier, that's all I really want out of this. Tomorrow, before you get up for work, look yourself in the mirror and say, you are smart, you are confident, and you are not your fucking khakis. Thank you. Yeah! Neo versus Tyler Durden. Judge, who wins? I'm sorry, Dave, it's Tyler. Tyler Durden, Emily Belden, give her a hand. Give her a hand. Our second topic, perhaps not quite so filled with gravity, and yet still appropriate for the night. Have identity politics destroyed the progressive left? I will be competing with Mr. Kirk Kicklighter. Give him a hand.
I was six years old, my mother was 23. I remember vaguely now from the many stories she's told me about that time in my life that I just completed the bulk of the physical therapy I'd gone through after having contracted a near fatal disease of spinal meningitis a year earlier. The stories of my five-year-old mind hallucinating about spiders and my tiny body bending backwards like a human crab are forever burned in my own mental legend. I remember bits and pieces of my childhood. I'm not sure if others can remember clearly the details of their daily life as children, but my recollection is spotted with visuals, scraps of music, explosions of emotion, all reinforced by the stories my family would tell with glee. We're all very Irish that way. We like to tell stories. My mother was a young mom, and given her age and the time of her coming of age, was most definitely somewhere in between the middle-class daughter of a veteran of World War II and a full-blown hippie. She named me Coupe DeVille before my great aunt changed it to Donald Ray Hall. <laughs> mom was a true bleeding heart liberal, protesting against the war for civil rights against the nuclear power plant being built just outside our tiny Kansas town. I remember election night in 1972. I remember that we had an orange, gold, and brown striped sofa, light green shag carpeting, and a yellow banana seat that I loved to play on. I remember that I had a stuffed underdog doll given to me in the hospital when I was all drugged up a year earlier, and we lived in an apartment on a street called Wildwood Lane in Wichita, Kansas. My mother divorced my father when I was four and had remarried a man named Dennis, a man who became, or always was, a vicious white wife beater and from whom I learned to detest, despise, and be disgusted by any man who hits a woman for any reason. Dennis was a Nixon supporter. My mom was almost obsessively for McGovern. George McGovern was an honest man running at the time, a uniquely populist platform. He was among the first men of any serious political party to advocate for gays, blacks, women, and was, at the outset, vehemently against the war in Vietnam. He personally challenged the old white men coalition headed by Hubert Humphrey and Richard Daley Sr. for control of the country's oldest political party and won. A decent man in politics, an anomaly for our times, McGovern was the real deal, legitimately one of the country's best and brightest. McGovern brought together a motley coalition of hippies, queers, women, blacks and browns, anti-war, pro-drugs, pro-choice, and those left standing after MLK and Malcolm X had been assassinated. McGovern started the politics of identity by giving the very people traditionally disenfranchised a seat at the table, a voice to be heard. For those who study such things, his was the first legitimized, and when I say legitimized, what I mean is embraced by the white male patriarchy and brought into the mainstream, foundation of what we now see as identity politics, but in an attempt to bring all these disparate identities together in a unified platform. I remember the, the rumblings of the election campaigns that were mounting. I remember vaguely hoping that Nixon would win so that my mom wouldn't get punched or hit with a skillet. I remember the argument, mostly spawned by my mom's iron hot rage that that motherfucker had won the presidency for another term. I remember thinking much later, when I was 10 or 11, that the savage beating she took that night was her fault. She wouldn't let up about Nixon and McGovern, and Dennis, Dennis finally snapped. 
As I grew older, I came to understand that while my mother was perhaps overly zealous in her political convictions, she never deserved to have a fist raised to her. I never had any genuine curiosity about why she was so in favor of the McGovern candidacy. McGovern has always been the guy that was the biggest loser in American presidential politics ever, even more pathetic than Dukakis. <laughs> Nixon pummeled him in 72. We all know that Nixon was corrupt, paranoid, and slightly batshit crazy. Understanding my mother's distaste for Tricky Dick has never been hard. But until the past year, it never occurred to me that a great deal of my mother's passion was as much against Nixon as for McGovern. Had I been of voting age back in 1972, I would have voted for McGovern. And I understand for the first time why my mother was so pissed at his overwhelming defeat at the hands of a corrupt Republican administration. It likewise, likewise provides light on a sinking suspicion that I've had for the last couple of years that the United States jumped the shark with Vietnam. The beginning of the end came with JFK's assassination, followed by the political assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and RFK. The clash between those who believed that our government was run by the people versus run by those who were actually pulling the strings culminated with Nixon's second term. We've been battling ever since to reclaim an upwardly mobile status as a nation. If we're smart, we take the fall gracefully, Brexit notwithstanding, like England, and press forth, with, press forth with a sense of dignity. If we're not, we destroy ourselves like Rome or the Aztecs and prove that representative democracy was just as effective as communism against the base natures of humanity. And America becomes a cool fable that future generations can marvel at in eighth grade history lessons. Today, the identity politics of that era are again battling the corruption and paranoia of not one but two major political parties. While I, to this day, love me some Bill Clinton. Love me Bill, Bubba, he's my Elvis. <laughs> it was his aggressive move to the center that pushed all of American politics to the right, leaving the progressive left adrift and leaderless. Obama was more center than truly left. And we had our McGovern in Bernie Sanders. And there was some light in the tunnel, but his time has passed and the man's 76 years old. It isn't that identity politics is dividing us and destroying the progressive left. Identity politics are the progressive left. And all we really need is a McGovern to unite the hippies, queers, blacks, browns, immigrants, and trans under one umbrella to survive we need more cats like George McGovern and my mom. Thank you. The most sacrosanct value for American progressives since the 60s has been caring about victims of oppression. We call this act of caring social justice. African Americans, women, LGBT, Latinos, our victim groups have become revered. Anyone who blames victims for their problems or who displays bigotry toward them can expect a highly moralistic, sometimes savage response from the progressive left. I do believe these groups have been victimized. Of course there is injustice, racism, sexism. 
Yes, there are times when the police behave brutally. In some cases, our problems are systemic. But I also believe that identity politics does more harm than good for real victims in 2017. It actually makes work, things worse for all of us. It, shut down, it shuts down honest debate. It increases intolerance rather than breeding greater tolerance. In despair, it encourages learned helplessness, even nihilism. And it increases polarization, shredding what little shared fabric we have as citizens who want to become a part of a democracy that actually functions. Here's why. Because human beings and groups are infinitely more nuanced than just one label. But the identity politics approach to social change makes earning the victim label an incredibly desirable, irresistible thing. Victimhood becomes a powerful status, a lethal weapon. The temptation to prevail in what critics call the oppression Olympics is enormous. And if you win that gold amulet, numerous privileges await you. What are the toxic rules of victim privilege? Rule one, victims are superior. They occupy the moral high ground, which is the most alluring power of all in America, circa 2017. Victims have carte blanche, carte blanche to employ outrage, disgust, self-righteousness, and self-pity in the service of their needs. Or, as my opponent himself has written in his wonderful blog, Literate Ape, we often promote the idea that suffering grants the sufferer some sort of innate wisdom and holy status. We romanticize the nobility of our holy victims, turning them into walking Dorothea Lange photos from the WP era, PA era, which, if you think about it, is actually quite patronizing. <laughs> Rule two, victim logic and reasoning are beyond debate. No one can blame or criticize a victim. Other people are wrong. They just don't get it. They can't get it because only victims can understand what it is to embody victimhood. Feelings overrule rationality. Therefore, arguing with victims is dangerous. There will be consequences. The transgressor risks being tattooed with an epithet, even in the absence of clear evidence. That guy is a, insert label here. He is harming our community. He should be fired. Let's take him down. Let's demonize him on Facebook and Twitter. My opponent is familiar with this treatment. <laughs> that woman is a racist. She should no longer be allowed to work as a theater critic in Chicago. Let's boycott her and stop giving her tickets to shows. She must be silenced. Identitarians love witch hunts and kangaroo courts and righteous moms in the name of justice. And I see this plague of victim privilege spreading through the, throughout the US. It's infected me. It's gotten to the point that not just legitimate victims are seeking this power. It's everyone. It's moms at PTA meetings. It's people virtue signaling to their echo chamber on Facebook. It trickles down subconsciously to the guy in the Ford truck trying to cut off the guy in the Subaru on the Dan Ryan Expressway. And here's another example of this plague. 
It's white nationalists and neo-Nazis carrying torches in Charlottesville, claiming the destruction of their culture. They've stolen pages from the progressive activist playbook. They are mastering victim rhetoric like a goddamn boss. Steeping oneself in the ide ideology of victimhood, regardless of your partisan stance, is spiritually and existentially addictive. The drug is shark-like in its efficiency. Over time, you need smaller and smaller offenses to trigger high levels of outrage. But like an opioid, in the long run, you become so addicted to it that you lose your empathy, you lose your reason, you become more destructive, more desperate. You actually stop growing as a human being because growth requires self-doubt and humility. Speaking of Charlottesville, a week after the tragedy there, I met with a progressive friend of mine to enjoy a culturally appropriated plate of nachos. <laughs> I had to put a joke in there somewhere. Um, she was uneasy, ups upset. She said to me, you know, I actually think it may be time to limit free speech if we truly want to make a difference in fighting racism. I was stunned. But the truth is, it's already happening. And you know who's leading the charge to limit free speech? It's not Donald Trump, although he is certainly an enemy of the truth. It's ignorant college students, the future of the left. Students at places like Howard University, where FBI Director James Comey tried to give a speech last month and was shouted down by black student activists. For what sin? For being, quote, a white supremacist. Look. I'm the son of an FBI agent, and I get that the FBI had a troubled history with civil rights, particularly in the 1960s, under J. Edgar Hoover, who was actually a racist. But Comey? This guy is a fucking Boy Scout compared to that. He's kept a framed photo of Dr. Martin Luther King on his desk for the past decade. The man set fire to his career in order to stop Trump. What the fuck? Okay, another example. When you get home, I want you to Google something. I want you to Google Yale University and Halloween video. What you'll watch is chilling. A white liberal professor standing in the middle of a lush quadrangle being screamed at by a horde of students who call him disgusting and disgraceful for almost 20 minutes. Why? Because his wife, also a faculty member, had the temerity to publish a letter suggesting that students should maybe just police themselves when it comes to questionable Halloween costumes. Ah, yes, political correctness. I'm chagrined to admit that I must agree with honest conservatives on this one. Identitarians love political correctness. For people who embrace identity politics, it's not enough to gradually change things through compromise or legislation or policy. Rule number three of victim privilege. It's not only okay to control what other think, others think and say, it is virtuous. Fascism pretending to be manners. That's the current progressive impulse to silence people. For progressives, it often takes the form of meta-intolerance. That is, intolerance of any view the victim judges to be intolerant. For me, this is where things start to become really dystopian and Orwellian. So the other night, I was sitting in a bar, and I'm talking with another good friend, a liberal white male. I was talking about doing this show. 
which led us to chat about white privilege. And that's a concept that has become trendy in the last five years. I was trying, as you, <laughs> you know better than I do, I was, trying, I was trying to reason through how I felt about it. Now, I don't want to go off on a huge tangent about the problems with this construct. The smallest problem is that it's linguistically dishonest. It's technically racist. The biggest problem with it is that it doesn't actually do any real good in terms of getting people to be more civil, more equal, or more connected. It mostly prompts lip service politically correct, correct apology making. Now, does privilege exist? Yes, of course it does, in many ways. I am privileged. But anyway, I, I briefly told my friend about my redneck relatives. I'm from a small town in Georgia called Jessup. And I said, my relatives in Jessup would laugh in my liberal face if I told them, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know that you're near poverty. I know that you're addicted to opioids. I know you live in a trailer. I know you have no health care. I know you have no college education. That doesn't matter. What you really need to do right now is apologize for the fact that you can drive a car without being stopped by the police. Because you are oppressing black middle class people in Atlanta. You are oppressing the students of color who go to Yale. Look, I'm already alienated enough from my relatives in Georgia. <laughs> so my friend and I agreed, the best we can hope for right now as white straight males is to somehow become a quote, ally. To some somehow prove that we are quote, woke. Suddenly the bartender who had been eavesdropping interrupted our conversation to gently lecture me. She said, that's right. It means you have to say you're sorry. Then shut up and listen, because you're guilty. You just don't realize it yet. I waited a beat to see if she was maybe joking, you know, fucking with me. There was a smile on her face, but she was dead serious. She spoke again. Your choices are silence or total repentance. <laughs> Rule number four. <laughs> For identitarians, being an oppressed person means you are incapable of being racist or sexist or even unfair. <laughs> but wait, I said. What if I choose to speak my concerns honestly? What if I choose to try to reason through civil debate? What if I offer mild criticism of the tactics or strategies that people are using to find justice? What if I say maybe we should try to approach this with all of us being on more of a, an equal footing as citizens rather than identities. Maybe we should stop turning our critics into the evil other. Nope, sorry, she said. That, my friend, would be, would be what is known as white-splaining or mansplaining. I'm not sure which, probably both. Huh. Ah, I said, I get it now. I know what it's about. It's about P-O-W-E-R. Who has it? Who doesn't? How to get it? How to keep it? Which reminds me of a great headline I read in The Onion last year. The headline said, Dude squanders white male privilege on job at Best Buy. <laughs> Listen, I could go on and on here, but I ask you honestly, if we follow this path of discourse, is that truly the road to a more just, more civilized society? Has major social progress ever been made by trying to shame huge demographics of human beings into admitting their evil, horrible guilt? 
Or is it a road to what we already see happening? Deepening fear, anger, division, a Democratic Party splintering and dissolving before our eyes as people retreat towards self-censorship and dissenting ideas are shouted down by the vetoes of heckling mobs. We have a demagogue holding the most powerful office in the world, screwing up royalty, and yet he still has a decent chance of being reelected in 2020. Are you ready for that to happen? Or are you ready to stop being victims? Because the truth is, we are not victims. We are powerful, creative, strong children of the universe. Thank you. And before you say it, I just want to remind you that you are a white man. So I'm just going to let you make your judgment. Yeah. Based on my white male privilege, Kurt. All right, there you go. Kurt, get quieter, give him a hand. Finally, our final topic. The topic is, what is more effective, rehabilitation or punishment? Give a big hand for Mike Vinopal, Erica Napolitano. Come on. I think most, most people agree that there's good in the world, but not all. However, I am certain that we can all agree that bad shit exists in the world. And furthermore, I think that we can all agree beyond a shadow of a doubt that bad shit also happens to exist in our worlds. It doesn't make you bad, but think of it like as a neurotoxin. Everyone can handle a certain level of it, but you need to be able to flush your system out from time to time. You need a functional release valve on that pressurized chamber we call a consciousness. Things upset you, you eventually let them go. You feel better. If you're fortunate, traumatic experiences you have are minimal. Daily stress is manageable and your bad shit levels remain in relatively low proportions. But fortune can be a cruel thing. If your bad shit levels are off the charts, you're suffering. Your mind is festering, soaked in neurotoxins. So soaked, in fact, your release valve doesn't even seem to be working. You feel broken. And sometimes you need guidance to put, back, put the pieces back together better. Take the broken, take the bad shit, and when you use the pieces to make something new, you build something more beautiful, something more solid. So punishment or rehabilitation? Well, we all know about punishment, but rehabilitation, less people actually know what it is because it's a lot more complicated. So I'm gonna break it down in layman's terms and try to use some simple words and visuals. How about this? Let's use music to represent the bad shit. Bad, violence. Violence, there's no doubt in anybody's mind it sounds violent. But you gotta listen close to find the beauty in it so you zoom in. 
Rehabilitation is adding new ideas to the mix as you listen and learn about a human to help them. Less violent. Good, less violence is good. And slowly through this process, a person can identify the bad shit and start to remove it. Less violent. I almost might I almost might dance, huh? <laughs> and some of it, some of it you don't delete. You need to keep. You just need to move it around, process the pain, and you make some adjustments within. And so, like I said, you make some adjustments within, and this is rehabilitation. Creating an individual who is internally in harmony, now less prone to breaking rules in our society. Punishment makes more bad shit in the brain. The bad shit builds up, makes you go insane, forming new habits through rehabilitation, training the brain for better solutions. For instance, how about this? You want to punish a criminal. I understand we got to hold rule breakers accountable, but punishment alone won't improve the future. The sentence has to have a rehabilitative nature. And after paying their debt to society, they come out with skills to manage anxiety. Maybe something changed their philosophy. Opportunity for education and therapy. Seems fair to me. No matter the root of corruption, we can always reprogram our function. <laughs> Think of the children in conditions unimaginable with a quality of life that is unlivable. You can't imagine how miserable. Their whole life experience has been a punishment. And some don't even know where their parents are. So the brains are filled to the top with the bad shit. No cost to them. They couldn't choose where they were born. They didn't pick this life, this form. Maybe for some, their only true hope is getting caught up with drug running and dope, banging and violence, thieving and silence. Silent because they can't talk through the trauma about their daddy, about their mama. Till they run out of luck, stop giving a fuck or give up. They get themselves locked up, delaying the pattern, the circle that's working round and round for that person. It's a pause button, a cause. A chance to break the platforms of the past. A chance to improve upon their flaws. A chance to process shit at last. Breaking down their walls. And as the walls fall, maybe they can find a new beginning in it all. Or maybe that's irrelevant, and we all got things we're fighting with. But there's no hope in punishment. There's no second chance you're giving them. You're not sending the message that this is a blessing, that you want them to be better. Only thing you're achieving is depressing. Treat them like a lesser, like an animal. As far as animals go, we've got it even figured it out for pets. But the courts and corrections facilities for humans have barely figured it out yet. Solitary confinement, putting prisoners in the hole, isolation from other humans should never be the goal. <laughs> Have you heart, no heart? Have you no soul? <laughs> Violence and sexual predators, you say. It's the bad shit in their past that made them that, that way. Want to treat them like animals? You'll breed more animals. Because all of us living and breathing mammals are highly susceptible, always impressionable, formed by experience no matter what the year is. 
And it's hard for them to take a responsibility when most of their life has proceeded so, so shittily. Can't help but see themselves as victims, hitting women because their daddy did, and hitting them too while he was at it. We take for granted certain securities when we're living life as the majority, but it's so much more to me. More than skin color, more than culture, more than socioeconomic status. It's the bastards running the planets, profiting off prisons, lining their pockets. Crushing the spirits of millions of nonviolent offenders, one nation under a spiteful God, remember? We need to be providing empowerment and teach them not to be victims of circumstance. Try to give them a chance, try to show them a path, maybe a little guidance in the process, getting through it, setting goals to follow through with, someone telling you, you can do it. Sometimes that's all that gets you through it. Let's start with art. Doesn't matter really what your mediums are. You can paint, you can play guitar. You are your own life's star. And we need art and music and whatever your outlet is, jottings and notebooks, sketches on iPads, sketches on pads, typing on laptops and iPhones and iPads. Expression's the only therapy that truly seems to set folks free to get the bad shit out of their physical bodies and hope to fill it in with the good shit. Maybe even eventually giving back something to their community. Rehabilitation. No matter the root of corruption, we can always reprogram our function. Place. <laughs> do you want to like go to the bar and get this guy something to drink? Because us guys are going to talk. <laughs> you know, locker room talk? We do that stuff. It doesn't mean anything. But we talk. This is punishment. A play in four short as fuck acts. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this picture of me. This has to be the best picture of me in the world. Is it not the best picture of me in the world? You know, I've got a big idea, it's huge. I think it's probably the best idea, the most awesome idea, because this story is, well, <laughs> it's the greatest story that you, you'll ever hear. It's about how I got to be a winner and how you can be a winner too. First, I want you to look at the person sitting to your right. If no one is sitting to your right, that is Obama's fault. <laughs> look to the person on your left. Now, I want you to reach out and put your hand on their shoulder. Don't even ask permission. You are entitled to this. Just reach out and put your hand right on their shoulder. You just start doing it. You grab them. Don't wait. When you're a star, they just let you do it. You can do anything. <laughs> now, with your other hand, I want you to grab a giant fucking pile of money. Your money. That money you made. And let's be honest, I know I have more than any of you losers in this room, but I can help you get your very own giant pile of money. It'll just cost you $25,000, and let's be honest, that's a fair price to pay if you want to be as rich as me. Because when you 
are as rich as I am, you can do whatever you want. I'm not here to sell you me. Me sells itself. My name has protected me from some very bad women. Women who wanted Jesus Christ. Who wanted to be seen for their fucking talent and given a chance in an industry that's just gonna gnaw them down to the circumference of a chicken bone for having the audacity to hope. <laughs> I mean, like, have you ever helped a friend move and after you finished unloading the truck, they gave you a pizza? Right? Right? Well, that's what I do. I help women move. What's wrong with wanting a pizza or a piece of after you're done getting it done? <laughs> but sometimes these ungrateful, lactose intolerant bitches think they can fight back. And that's, that's where you can lose. But I'm a winner, and winners don't let that happen to them. That's why you gotta have a giant pile of money like the Donald said. It's your investment in your career, in your lifestyle, because that money buys you, a deserving man, access, protection. It buys you what you deserve. Like, like the suit I have on. I get up every day and I put a suit on because I'm asking society to treat me a certain way. Because I've earned that. I've built that. I mean, look at this picture. Look how close my hand is to her tits and I just slid that hand right on up there. That is the kind of access that being a winner can get you. So what, what can we learn from this? Money buys you what you deserve. Privilege. The privilege of being an industry's most whispered secret. Imagine cultivating a life where people talk about you nonstop, where a resume credit with my name on it means more than the $75,000 they spent on an MFA in acting. That's a huge privilege to be spoken about like that with such reverence. I've given my all to this craft over decades and decades and people like you flock to plays and movies I'm in, which is why I had the privilege of winning an Academy Award for my work in The Usual Suspects and telling you that I am Kaiser Soze. Privilege is being able to spoil your own movies for the one asshole in the audience that hasn't seen your finest piece of work. I mean, except for House of Cards, am I right? <laughs> and you can't deny that House of Cards is a goddamn masterpiece. I mean, I'm just really glad that I could give Robin Wright the type of mentorship and support she needed to shine like she has. Well, I mean, she's really surprised me. And yeah, I was sad that when we had to kill off Meacham in the back of season two, but I had the privilege of getting that queer storyline on television in the first place. You liked it. <laughs> And you also liked when I pushed that girl in front of the train. 
kind of like I did with the whole queer community when I apologized for the Anthony Rapp thing. I mean, that was 30 years ago. I don't remember it. But if it did happen, I'm sorry. I'm choosing to live as a gay man now, so that should explain everything. <laughs> that explains everything. It explains how I've spent my life in the presence of peacocks who can grab my pussy and why every grope has been deflated to a secret list of men to avoid instead of public allegations to face. Why there is no rehabilitation for those who have reduced me to the bland, paper-wrapped flavor of a dressed-like-that, asking-for-it argument. Why punishment is the only true sea change in the industry of men profiting from those they target. After centuries of winning, I want you to lose. I want you to feel shame that burns hotter than the flush that rose from my chest when you grabbed my ass. Did, did you really do that? And I felt like I would just be no fun if I said something. I want you to be as disbelieved in a suit as I am in a skirt, and as much a target for your chromosomal birthright as I have been for mine. I want you to be stripped, discarded, discredited, disowned. I want to hear you scream just to give a voice to the pain and shame I've stomped down for 28 fucking years like a cigarette that won't stop burning my self-worth. Because you've had the privilege of hiding in broad daylight while I've had to walk boldly through shades of disbelief. Punishment means that consequence has finally pulled into port, dropped anchor, and released me from the shameful weight I never should have had to carry in the first place. Because it's your shame. And you guys were all right about one thing. It's your name that deserves to be spoken in instances like these. Because I am tired of being the subject of every sentence about abuse. I'm ready to be the predicate because right here is where this shit ends with punishment. Judge! Not an easy one. Yeah, Erica. All right, give Eric yeah. Napolitano. There you go, punishment win. And that is Bug House. Give a huge round of applause to our performers, Emily Golden, Dave Goss, Kurt Kicklider, Mike Vinopal, Erica Napolitano. Give a big hand for Richard Norby, our judge to the Haymarket Pub and Brewery and our amazing waitstaff, right? Tip them well, tip them well. Um, I will tell you that if you are interested in uh, hearing this show, we, uh, we are recording it, and it is a podcast. You can find out about all the Literate 8 podcasts by going to literate.com slash 
podcasts. <laughs> it's so simple, it's fucking crazy. Also, we have three major events that we do every month. We have Identity Flip, we and uh, the sickest fucking stories I ever heard, which are both at the G-Man Tavern, and the first Monday of every month is here with Bug House at the Haymarket Pub and Brewery. And you can find out all those dates and information by going to literateape.com slash events. It's fucking crazy how that works. With that in mind, thank you so much for coming out. Stick around and have a drink. Talk to the performers. Thank you very much. Have a great night.